Hi, I'm Shannon, pastor at Sturgeon Bay Community Church. I want to thank you for joining us during our study of the book of Mark, where the theme is that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, the Son of God. The whole point of studying this book is so that you can find out more about what the Bible has to say about the person and the work and the message of Jesus Christ. I would encourage you to grab a cup of coffee and a notebook, and let's dive into the book of Mark. And I hope that you could join us sometime soon for a live service where ministry happens in relationships and you can get connected to other brothers and sisters in the faith. See you soon. For the past nine months or so, we've spent our time in the book of Mark really looking uh, to understand who was Jesus, what was the story, what's the gospel message, and making sure that we have that in our minds fresh and clear. It's the way we do preaching at Community Church most of the time. We want to work our way through the Bible slow and steady, making sure we don't miss anything. Let Let me see if I can make that point to you. How many of you moved to Door County from somewhere else? You're with me, okay? We left God Bless Texas behind. You left wherever else you came from. Got the heck out of Chicago. Good for you. Uh, You came up here. And and after a while, though, here's what happens. You you just miss a lot of things. You just take it for granted. You get in your car and you drive. You go to where you got to go. And then you come back. Um, you, You go do your errands. You go do this. You go do that. Every once in a while, it's important to just go for a walk. Go, go to the land trusts, one of them. Just go for a walk. Go to, go to Potawatomi. Go to a peninsula. Just take a walk and just notice. Get on a motorcycle and take a drive. The things you smell, the things you see, <laughs> some of you don't want to smell, but you know, those cattle are great, right? But as you, as you the, the smelling the, the bay breeze, you know, smelling the dairy air. But when you, when you drive, there, there's things you, you notice, and it's really neat. When you walk, when you take a slow ride, you pick up on all the small things that you miss when you're in a hurry and you just race through. When we go through the scriptures, a lot of times we're we're just going in there and we're looking at a verse or we're doing a Bible study and we just follow a passage. But it's not often that we take our time to just slow, steady, appreciate the gospel. Slowly, steady, appreciate a book, a passage. That's what we do here at Community Church most of the year because we really believe that when we do that, you can understand it the way it was written and what they heard and make that application today because the Bible is just as relevant today as it was when it was written. Amen? So um, that's why we do it. That's why we took our time in Mark. I hope you've enjoyed that. What we're going to do today is just going to be a 30,000-foot flyby of the book of Mark just reminding us, and we're going to center in on that question we all need to be asking at the end. But... Uh, by popular demand, let me let me do something I need to do, um, and that's just talk with you a little bit about where we've come from and where we're going with regards to uh, messages and sermons and everything at Community Church. Um, we did the the book of Mark, taking that long, slow ride, slow walk through there, um, and it was driven by a passage. I want to I want you to hear this from me. Our hearts. Or actually, let me do this a different way. Let me, let me let you hear something from Corinthians, and then we'll come to that passage. From now on, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer see him this way. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old has passed away, and the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, 
not counting their trespasses against him as he committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we have become ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We are transformed, friends, as new creations. And that new creation, that transformation happens because of who Jesus is. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. That has a transforming effect on who we are and how we live. Now hear these words. Our hearts are like compasses and embodied homing beacons. Our loves are pulled magnetically to some north towards which our hearts have been calibrated. Our actions and behavior, indeed our whole way of life, are pulling us out of this attraction to some vision beyond to the kingdom of heaven. My want for us as a church is this. I want us to be fully transformed in the way that we think and in the way that we live so that when people look at people from Sturgeon Bay Community Church, they see genuinely different behaving folks. Our value system, our actions, our behaviors, our ways of thinking are following that internal compass, that, that existential direction finder that at all points is drawing us back in a direction. Look, we're going to fail. We're going to go over here and we're going to sin, right? You're going to try that again. You're going to sin. You're going to fail from time to time, right? Okay, it's not just me, you too. We're going to do that. But that compass is going to draw us back on path to where we're supposed to be. We're going to have to say, I'm sorry. Hey, I messed that up. Hey, would you forgive me? Whoa, I, I've gotten off into a ditch here. Uh, I, I need to get out of this ditch. I need some sisters and brothers around me to help me get back on the path that I know I'm supposed to be going on. This is the Christian life. This is what we do. We are patient and loving and joyous and kind and gracious and forgiving. And we're filling our minds with the things of God as Paul is encouraging there in Philippians. He, we're, we're asking God to give us clarity in that direction. And to do that together, recognize that we don't need to judge each other, but encourage one another, be accountable. Um, and, and that's the Christian life. That's exactly what we're supposed to be. And if we can be pulled magnetically in that direction, it means that this new creation is a new thing. But that new thing had to start at church with understanding what is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why we've done the book of Mark. Here's where we're going from this point, though. Um, as Mark concludes, we're going to be moving into several weeks of looking at the attributes of God. It's one thing to understand the gospel. It's another thing entirely to understand the God who became human and lived among us to offer salvation and reconciliation unto himself. We need to understand who that God is because that's one of those truths that transcends all time and all cultures and all peoples. Understanding the attributes of God is crucial. From there, we're going to move into something that I think is equally crucial. Conflict and disagreement happen, right? Don't raise your hand in particular, but are you in conflict right now? Are, are, are you in the middle of a disagreement or a broken relationship with somebody or some group of people? I am perpetually frustrated as an American, as a person, if I turn on a news channel. I see the nastiness. I see the extremism. I see this dichotomy that's been wedged into the middle of my people, Americans. 
I'm looking at how the, the, the days of, of cordial discourse and behaving one another are completely gone right now. And rather than people coming to the middle to work out our differences, we tend to explode to the margins, take to social media, uh, take to trashing each other, living a Twitter life, rather than coming to the middle and working things out with one another. I believe that is something that's lost that we as Christians can say, can we show you how to do that? Can we, can we demonstrate what that looks like? Cordiality, reconciling, putting our differences beside and, and coming back to the middle and, and being reconciled to one another. So we're going to spend six to eight weeks in the book Peacemaker, um, and we're going to go through what does Christian conflict management and reconciliation actually look like. Now, those of you who've been here about 10 years will remember, remember this? We did this before. When I first came to Community Church, there was a wee problem around Sturgeon Bay about forgiving and, and uh, working out some uh, things of the past and letting them go. And uh, I say that in all chuckling because I was as guilty as a lot of the folks who were here at the time, but it's been a while. So we're going to go back through Peacemaker as a people because I genuinely believe if we're going to be doing the ministry of reconciliation that Paul is talking to the Corinthians about, we need to understand what reconciling looks like. Fair enough? So we're going we're gonna to spend a few weeks, six to eight, in reconciliation called Peacemaker. From there, we'll find ourselves in the fall kickoff. I'm not going to tell you the theme this year uh, yet. I'll let Charlie do that at the uh, outdoor service at the... Uh, at the uh, baptism, you'll get to hear the, hear the theme. Y'all all cool, grab your cool uh, signs and put them out in front of your house. Uh, but we'll be doing that in September. And then from there, we're going to go right back into an exegetical walk through 1 Corinthians, which we'll be calling First Americans, because that's exactly the kind of culture Paul is writing to. And we'll probably take nine months or so in uh, 1 Corinthians. We might hit 2 Corinthians a little bit, um, but primarily in the Corinthians. So I wanted you to know where we're going and understand as a church that all of this is in a direction of us learning to be people who are identifying that magnetic pull that the Lord has placed in your heart. And we're becoming more and more consistent with that walk so that in our culture around us, in Sturgeon Bay, Wisconsin, and the United States, the globe, that we are a people who are transformed and who are demonstrating a love for God and a love for people that draws other people to the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Fair enough? That's where we're going. So let's review where we came from in Mark <clears throat> and talk a little bit about um, what we need to do with that message. So the book, actually, let's open up in prayer since we've done a, a narrative and our, our summary, and then we'll go into, uh, into Mark. Father God, I just ask this morning as we uh, spend some time in your word that you would um, just settle into this place. Lord, we spent almost 53 weeks just looking at the book of Mark, trying to understand what do we need to learn from this? What can we grasp from the stories of your life and the, the overall theme that John Mark wanted us to hear, that you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Lord, I just pray this morning as we, as we fly through the book, just getting a taste of it as a whole, that that central theme settles into our soul, just galvanizes our behavior and our mindsets. God, so that, that this message of the gospel really does serve as a transforming effect on our hearts and minds, causing us to love you and love other people. So, Lord, just for, for clarity as we talk and uh, retention as we go, Lord, this is our prayer this morning. We pray it in the name of Jesus, whom we love. And God's people say, amen.
The book of Mark is the very first gospel to be written. It was written by John Mark, who was a disciple of Peter, a young man uh, who had been witness to many of the things at the end of Jesus' ministry, but was a firsthand and active witness to the age of the apostles, the things that the apostles would do in the world around them. It was the very first one, and, and as such, it's rather brief. Mark's intention is to get those points across and load people up with the facts that they needed to understand so that they could live the Christian life uh, with conviction and, and with power. He often says the word immediately because Mark is brief, he's to the point, he's getting on, he's making sure people can remember it. And he wants that single point to come across all the way through the very theme of Mark, which is that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That's what Mark is trying to get across to everyone. Mark wants us to understand that Jesus is worthy of devotion, that Jesus is far more than human. But he came and he humbled himself. He understood what humiliation is to be a person, to live in, in, in a time of slavery, a time of, of, um, of poverty, to be below blue collar, um, and to, to live in this life amongst humanity, to understand sorrows, and to die an innocent death, and to be resurrected, to defeat death, so that you and I can join him in that relationship, a relationship of one who really understands what it is to be you. So Mark is trying to communicate these things. How did the book of Mark get to our hands and how did it start? Well, it began like this. It was written by John Mark there in Alexandria. He was the bishop of Alexandria and, 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 and in a sense the, the leader of that great library there in that city. And Mark wrote the first of the Gospels. This Gospel now would be taken from church to church to church all across North Africa. It would go down into Ethiopia, across to India, uh, to Asia Minor, all through the ancient Mediterranean. The gospel would go from church to church, and it would be read. People would hear the gospel read. And the reason was most people could not read and write. They were illiterate at that point in time. The family you were born into is the social class you were in. The job your parents did was probably the job you did. Um, if your parents were slaves, you were probably going to be a slave too. If your parents are wealthy and you get the picture. So when the gospel was read, it was delivered in a way that people could remember. It was seen as scripture, by the way, as early as 64 in the common era, the Christian era or AD, whatever you like to say, whatever trips your switch. When, when that, that time period came, they understood that this gospel was part of the scriptures. It was the revelation of God. And so they didn't feel as if they were adding to God's word something that wasn't his word. They were including something they recognized as his word. So the gospel of Mark, very early was understood to be Scripture. And we understand that the entirety of God's Word is truth, and Jesus is the Word of God become flesh. All Scripture is inspired. It is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, and training in righteousness, that God's people are equipped and ready for every good work. That's why the gospel was there. And that's why Jesus, who came and became the revelation of the Word in flesh, was recorded by Mark first and then the other gospels later so people could hear the truth of Jesus Christ. It was delivered, as we say, in a formula, though. The formula was delivered so that people who could not read and write could hear it and remember it. Now, they were much better at this than we are today. They didn't have smartphones. They didn't have supercomputers in their pocket. They could pull out and access the world of knowledge. They couldn't even read most of them. So what they were good at was retaining patterns and cues and clues and be able, being able to recall things um, that they had heard. They were very good at it. And so Mark delivered his gospel in three parts. It's almost like a 
drama. And so the early commentators, Erasmus and Eusebius and others, um, even Ignatius, had, had put it in the form of the three-part drama of Mark. Jesus' public ministry in chapters 1 through 8, we'll talk about the things Jesus did. That's going to culminate in a phrase at the end of, of, of chapter 8 in verse 29, and it's going to go like this. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the crescendo of the first part. The next movement in this drama is chapters 9 through 13, where we see Jesus confronting the corrupt religious establishment. So the great miracles, the confrontation, and then is going to be the passion. And so chapters 14 through 16 are the passion of the Christ, culminating, of course, in the resurrection and the ascension. So this is what Mark is shaped like. So let's take a look across those, um, just kind of flying by and letting all this sink in. Now, I want you to listen as a church, as a person, as if it's the first time you ever heard it all together in one place. Because that's how the original hearers of Mark would have heard it. All at once. All of this is a singular narrative towards a singular theme. One conclusion you just can't possibly miss. Anybody want to tell me what that might be? What's that, what's that one singular thing you cannot possibly miss by the time you get to the end of Mark? <clears throat> you guys are weak. We're going to try this one more time. And if you can't do it, I'm going to have Tana come up here and she's going to do that coach thing and make you. Do, okay, you ready? Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. Does that work? Okay. Jesus' public ministry is going to be the first part. Mark is going to start not with the story of Mary and of Joseph, because that was important to the Jews. Mark is not talking mostly to Jews. Mark is talking mostly to North Africans and, and, and people in, in the, 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 the area of Sahara, the people of India, the people of Egypt. He's speaking mostly to non-Jews. And so what Mark is doing is he speaks about the public ministry of Jesus who is the Messiah? So he's going to start with Old Testament prophecies. Everybody knew who the Jews were. They knew they were the very oldest religion. And what he's trying to do is help them understand that their prophecies are coming through in Jesus. So that's where he begins. And he talks about the fact that a messenger would come ahead, a voice crying in the wilderness, and everybody had heard of John the Baptist. And so Mark is starting with that story of the herald. From there, we start to see Mark burst through uh, the, the things that are a part of the life of Jesus. I'm going to turn and read it off the screen uh, if you don't mind. He starts with the, the calling of Jesus' disciples from the working class, not the wealthy elite, not society's best and educated, but from the working class, the commoners. He's going to drive out demons. He's going to heal Peter's mother-in-law, and he's going to heal many others. Uh, Jesus is going to start doing his public preaching, and we'll remember the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to heal a leper, and he's going to do this in direct contradiction of what the religious authorities wanted to see happening. The religious authorities did not want to see people becoming well, because if they became well, they didn't need the religious authorities to take care of them anymore, uh, and the religious authorities' jobs would start to diminish because people had access directly to God. Sound familiar? 
And so this was part of the early teaching of Jesus' ministry. Uh, He heals a paralytic famously by telling him, your sins are forgiven. We're going to find our way uh, to the call of Matthew, which is one of the more important aspects of the book of Mark. The call of Matthew is astonishing, folks, because Matthew was a tax collector. The lowest form of societal garbage in the ancient world would be a traitor who would betray his own people, take advantage of people by collecting taxes, cheating them, and giving the money to Rome, and taking the rest for himself, and him becoming wealthy and debaucherous on the back of his own people. They were hated beyond anybody else in their society, these tax collectors. And so the call of Matthew is huge, and it culminates with Jesus saying, I came not to those who are well, but to those who are sick, because those are the ones who need the doctor. And this concept enraged the religious elites, because Jesus was spending time with commoners and with sinners, which is, by the way, exactly where the church ought to be found, amongst the people who are hurting, who are failing, and who are far from God. Those are the people that ought to find the love the compassion, the interest of Jesus' people who care enough about them to know their story and love them enough to do life with them and show them what it's like to be Jesus' people rather than coming in with both sides of a sword and judging and attacking. The church of Jesus Christ is welcoming, loving, encouraging, getting in the trenches with you, even if we don't affirm the sin you're living, but loving you enough to love you and let you see the love of Jesus. That's what he demonstrated. Jesus would then go on to demonstrate that he's Lord over even the religious laws of the Sabbath. He will uh, heal people. He will head to sea to get away from crowds that were crowding in him. He'll silence demons. He's going to call specifically these 12 apostles to follow him. And these 12 commoners that Jesus gathers around himself are from a whole cross-section of society. And he's going to call these people to be uh, the people who will take his message out. He's going to declare that his real followers are like his family. And it's why in the Christian church we see each other as family. Uh, sometimes to our tackiness we call each other brother and sister. Uh, but, but what we're seeing is that we're like a family. And that's exactly how Jesus wanted us to see. Uh, the Pharisees uh, will, will hate this about him, of course, because they need strata and classes. Jesus will begin now to teach in parables, things that are easy to remember for commoners. He's going to talk about the sower and the seeds. He's going to talk about your lamp, which is like a light. And you don't hide a light under a basket where nobody can see it. You have it out in the open so everybody knows. And he talks about the fact that real followers of God are going to live their faith out in the open no matter what it costs, but everybody's going to know that's a follower of God or of Jesus. He talks about the mustard seed, the least among them, having the greatest impact when God's able to use them. Jesus will calm a storm. He'll cast out demons. He's going to heal a Samaritan or Gentile woman who's been bleeding for years. He's going to heal this person and give this person who is an out cast, the ability to be an upstanding member of society again, who can tell a story and have impact in people's lives because she's been restored and returned to a place. She's been, dare we say, reconciled to God. Jesus is going to raise a dead girl back to life. Jesus is going to um, be rejected in his hometown. He's going to go back to, to Galilee, to Nazareth, and he's famous now. He's been doing all these amazing things, and he comes back home, and they go, no, 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 you're, you're just the construction worker. 
You're the brick mason, the, you're the stone mason, you're the carpenter, you're nobody special. You're kind of too big for your britches there, mister. Go back to your shop. You have no right to be acting the way you are. He'll be rejected. He'll then commission the 12 to go out as his apostles and tell the story of the gospel so far and the message that he's taught to the people all around, and they will do that. They're going to come back, and Jesus is going to reconnect with them while they're on a, sh- on a boat. He's going to walk on the water in the middle of the storm. He's going to do seashore healings and teachings all around Galilee. He's going to reshape the teaching of the elders and the great leaders of the faith as the great rabbi. And in doing so, everybody's going to be talking about it. And then he's going to heal a Gentile kid which Jews would have nothing to do with. He's going to heal a deaf man up north when on their trip to Caesarea Philippi. Somebody who's not a good Jesus follower, not a good Jew, but a Herodian. And the guy's deaf and Jesus is going to heal him. He's going to feed 5,000 at one occasion and 4,000 at another. <clears throat> He's going to reject the demands of the Pharisees that he gives some kind of a sign to validate he has the right to do these things. I need to get a drink, excuse me. Well, that much talking makes you thirsty. Apologize. He's going he's gonna to heal this man, and he's going to do so in such a way that's going to cause everybody to have to go. He's not just a rabbi. There's something special about him. Who could this be? And the question has been building. Who has the power to heal, to walk on water, to feed thousands? Who has the power to do all this? And Jesus asked the question there in chapter 8, who do you say that I am? And the words come from Peter. The culmination there in verses 27 to 30, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Boom, and the cat's out of the bag. Jesus is the Messiah, the son of God. That's the culmination. That's what all of these miracles and teachings are all about. Blessed are those, blessed are those, blessed are those, healed are those, restored are those, accepted are those, encouraged are those, transformed are those, because he's the Messiah, and that's the effect of God on people. The second chapter, the second movement begins really uh, with the confrontation. So now what's going to happen starting really in chapter 9, you're going to see who Jesus is. It's going to run directly into who the establishment are. The the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the Sanhedrin, the Herodians, these people are not going to accept this guy coming in changing the status quo. They don't care if you are God. This is our way of doing things and you're not messing with it. So here comes Jesus bringing love and peace peace along with the sword, which will divide truth from falseness. So he'll begin uh, by talking about the fact that his death and resurrection will come. He's going to tell his followers about this. It's going to blow their mind. Then they're going to see him transfigured. He's going to be there on that mountaintop with Moses and Elijah transformed into his holy state. And they're going to be astonished by this. And what they're going to say is, let's just build a big church and let's all just stay right here. Now that we know who you are and we've seen who you are, let's just build an enclave. Let's just build another, another Bethphage maybe and we'll all just stay here in this place with no sin and we'll just huddle up and cloister here in this little silo. Let's do that. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not at all how this works. So he's going to send them out amongst the Gentiles, amongst the people, and he's going to tell them that the greatest of you in this new community of the transformed people are going to be those who serve others. He's going to say, whoever's not against us is for us, and really blow the mind of them saying, but they have to act just like us to be with us. He says, no, as long as they're declaring the truth, they're on our side. 
He's going to condemn those who attempt to discredit him and cause the downfall of his followers. And then there was that week that was so popular here at Sturgeon Bay Community Church where we talked about divorce. And I told you that Jesus has a very strong feeling about divorce. He hates it. And so must we. We understand that a divorcing is the rending and the tearing of souls and people and families apart. And that God's intention was always that one man and one woman would love each other completely and wholly, each of them giving a hundred percent into that marriage and loving the other person so that in that marriage could be the picture of Jesus and his church, God and his people. But that picture is unfaithfully lived out by human beings who continue to betray one another, who continue to live selfishly and therefore divorces become that reality. But Jesus is saying, I'm not condoning. I'm telling you that it's the tearing and the rending apart and God's plan is the holy plan and you must aim for that holy plan. And the message then, youngsters, is this, young folks, date according to your Christian values, marry according to your Christian godly pursuits and values, and you love your spouse with all of your heart and your soul and your mind, and you love them as you love yourself, and you love them as you love your God, and you support one another and treat one another as if they are as important to you as you yourself. And in that marriage, that picture of God and humanity, of God and His redemptive purpose as Jesus in the church, and God and Jesus and mankind and our Lord is personified in your marriage, and it becomes a testimony to everyone else around you. But when the church is known for ripping and tearing and shredding marriages apart, just like the rest of the world, we lose a lot of that testimony. People are hurt. Children are hurt. Individuals are left damaged for life because of that rending. And our challenge as a church is this, I love you. We love one another. Let's do all we possibly can to live marriages that look like the kingdom of heaven. And if it's too far gone or if it's already gone, the next time, let's live out that marriage or let's live out that call to singleness, perhaps, in a way that demonstrates the love of Jesus Christ and the call of the kingdom. And so that week was, was super popular. I got a lot of great emails. And, and, and so <clears throat> that was fun. The rich young ruler, uh, following uh, that will be the, the teaching about wealth and security and the predictions of his death. Again, Jesus is confronting people on our idolatry of financial security. And Jesus is saying for the rich young ruler, his security was in his dollars that would bring him uh, security and safety. He felt that he had followed all the rules of the law and God had rewarded him with financial, uh, uh, financial gain. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 you misunderstand. Uh, financial gain is just like any other thing in your life. It does not indicate anything other than what you may have, but it has to point to the heart. And so Jesus was saying, don't worship your financial security. Don't let possessions and wealth become your idol. He moved on from there to talk a lot about suffering and service are common to Christianity. And we confronted this idea of the health and wealth gospel lies that we see in our world today, that the prosperity theology saying that if you're in Jesus, you won't be sick and you won't be impoverished. If you're in Jesus, he'll reward you with all these wonderful things. And we'll read the prayer of Jabez every day. And, and somehow that's supposed to make sense in the life. And Jesus going, no, 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 no. Those of you who follow me, like me, will know sorrow. You will know suffering. Some of you will know uh, the suffering of wealth. Others of you will know the suffering of poverty. But at all, all of us as human beings are going to encounter disappointment and suffering because that's the human condition in the fall. 
And in overcoming those things, we understand what it is to be more than conquerors in Jesus Christ. And one day when this life, which is only a porch, is over and we enter into the great house of God, we're going to be able to put it all into perspective and understand what the cost of sin was and what the redemptive purpose of Jesus was and the beauty of God's original design. What a day that will be. Jesus went on to, uh, to heal blind Barnabas, which was an enormous earth-shattering thing to happen there. Uh, we'll see the triumphal entry where Jesus comes into Jerusalem, into Jerusalem with all the heralds of Hosanna, 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 and he's going to be demonstrating he is the sacrifice that's come for people. He is the king entering in to usher in the Messianic kingdom. We're going to see the fig tree cursed, and we're going to see the cleansing of the temple where Jesus said, this is my father's house, which is to be a place of prayer for all people. And you've turned it into a den of thieves. By the way, all people. That means no matter where people are in their life, when they come to the church, what they find is not the judgment. What they do not find is the economy of the self-righteous. What they find in the church is the love and the inclusion of God's people who are welcoming and accepting of you, even if we don't affirm the sin that you may be in right now. But we love people. And that coming to the church ought to be the safest place in all of Door County. Is anybody willing to say amen to that? And that's what God's church should be, a place of prayer for all of us. A place of humility and of worship and of edification and encouragement. And that's what God's temple was supposed to be. And that's why Jesus drove, drove them out <clears throat> with such ferocity on that day. Jesus now uh, will be confronting the religious authorities and, and the, the rules of that day. They're going to question him about as religious leaders. They're going to continue to try to trick him. They're going to continue to try to, to find ways to trip him up in his words so they can destroy him. But he becomes incredibly popular with the people because he's teaching according to the law. And he's making the law come alive. And they're going, wow. All the history and all the prophets and all the laws, they all make perfect sense. This is what the Messiah is supposed to be, a whole new way. And the religious authorities are going, we're the ones you're supposed to be giving your love and authority and your money to, not him. I don't want you respecting him. You're supposed to respect us or we'll destroy you. And so they end up creating crowds to turn against him. But they fail at every attempt to, to trip Jesus up. They say things like, uh, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? Because if they could trip him up saying that one commandment's better than all the others, then they could say, oh, he's trashed the other commandments. We got to kill him. He's a destroyer of Judaism. And so what they do is they ask him, he says, oh, the greatest commandment, of course, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and your strength. And the second of the commandments is just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And upon this rests all of the laws and the prophets. <laughs> And the entire religious establishment went, oh, yeah, he got us on that one, didn't he? I don't have a, don't have a response. But what Jesus was doing, he was talking to Sturgeon Bay Community Church. He said, people, love God above all things and love each other as much as you love yourself. And if you can do that, all the laws and the prophets, they're all going to make perfect sense. And there's harmony amongst God's people. You see, that's the greatest commandments, and that's where he stumped them. He moved on from there, of course, 
um, to the, the final days where he would teach about the greatest commandment. He would be identified as the son of David as he would teach to the crowds. He would, he would, um, he would affirm the widow with the widow's might. See, and it's not the amount you're giving, but the heart behind the amount. And so the outward signs that man is looking to isn't what it's about. It's about the heart that God is looking to. That's why the widow's might was greater than the rich man's offering. And then he began to teach about the downfall, the prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem, and what that would ultimately look like. And of course, that would be um, what was allowed now for people to start the passion. And so the final movement in this play of Mark really begins um, as, uh, as Jesus is anointed at Bethany. And Jesus will, will be gathered there in the home with those followers, and, and the lady would come in, and she would take the alabaster flask. She would crack that alabaster flask, and, and she would give Jesus absolutely everything as an act of atonement and of adoration. That everything meant her financial security. It meant her identity. It meant her life savings. It also meant that she was letting everybody know she was a follower of him with nothing held back. Like the rich young ruler, nothing is held back. I love you with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, even though I recognize that you are God in the flesh and that you're a dead man. And that that's what that offering meant. That's what that alabaster, alabaster flask of nard really meant when she gave it to Jesus. And it was a lightning bolt amongst the apostles. The Passover meal would begin as John Mark uh, uh, speaks of it. Judas would betray him. He's captured in the garden, led to an illegal trial before the Sanhedrin, a more illegal trial before, uh, before the Herodians and then before Pilate. The people would ask before Pilate for Barabbas instead of Jesus. Oops, wrong slide. Jesus would then be brutalized by the Romans, crucified with criminals. His last words from Psalms 22 will be earth shattering though, and it'll sum it all up. The apostles had abandoned him. And only a few of the women and one of the apostles had come to the foot of the cross to, to see the final moments of their Messiah, of their rabbi, of their Jesus. Many of had lost all hope at that point. And as Jesus is on that cross, he utters his last words and he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was the first lines of the 22nd Psalm. And everybody who was there would have heard in the rest of their mind the rest of that Psalm, which was the story of David saying, God, why have you abandoned me? And God saying, son, you're not abandoned. You've, you're in this place. I love you. You're still here with me. And I'm going to demonstrate my power through you now, through my reconciling, through my restoration of you. And when Jesus said those words on the cross, everybody at that moment should have gone, oh, that's what this is about. He said he would, be, he would be coming back in three days. He would be handed over. He'd be crucified. And in three days, he would return. And at the cross, everybody should have recognized it and got their lawn chairs and set it outside the tomb and waited for the third day. But they weren't hearing it. They missed it. And so the Roman centurion will see all the chaos going on around. And he would go, surely that's the Son of God, because only a God could die like that with that much composure, that much intentionality. And so Jesus goes away from them, and on the third day, he comes out of that grave. Joseph's bold move, of course, is to put Jesus in his own grave. Jesus will be resurrected on that third morning, observed by the ladies who were still faithful, who would go back and tell the others. And then we're going to see that Jesus in that longer ending of Mark uh, will continue to affirm over and over and over again that he was alive and that his people have a great commission to take to the world around them. He will walk down that road of Emmaus and Jesus will teach to them from all the prophets diligently 
all the ways that the Old Testament pointed to him so that by the time we get to the end of the the book of Mark, what I want you to understand is simply this. It's not the destination where we're going when we die. It's the journey we're on. Surrendering and loving Jesus, giving all of our heart, our soul, our passion, our strength, our day, our time, our resources towards him. That's the journey that we're on. It means we're going to sin along that path. We're going to be forgiven along that path. People are going to do us wrong, and we're going to forgive them anyway. We're going to love people who are different than us. We're going to hang out with the Zacchaeuses and the Matthews. They're going to come to our church and find a welcoming, loving place here where sin is not condoned, but people are ever more loved. They're going to find patience, gentleness, kindness, loving, long-suffering, understanding, inclusion. They're going to find that in the body of Jesus Christ. So people who are pursuing that magnetic north at all times, even when we mess up at pulling each other back up, when we fall in the ditch, pulling each other and going back along the way, that's the journey we're on as the people of Jesus. It's a journey of love, and it's a journey of devotion and of faithfulness. That's the Christian life. And you know why we live that way? Because we've spent time understanding that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God. We've been transformed now by the renewing of our minds, the renewing of our hearts, so that we can live out the truth that's inside of us every day. That's the journey we're on. That's the call of the gospel. What I just shared with you in the last 21 minutes is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You have it now. You have in your mind, in your heart, in your soul, that which people 2,000 years ago would hear for the very first time. And for the past 2,000 years, that gospel has been faithfully taught around the world and unfaithfully lived out by Jesus' church. People who are supposed to be transformed have remained sinners. Some have done it better. Some have done it poorer. But the gospel is still there despite the best and the worst efforts of people. The gospel of Jesus that you now possess demands a response.